You may be seated. I hope you're experiencing some of that peace that Pastor David's been speaking about uh, the last few weeks. That's beautiful, beautiful worship this morning. Uh, I want to just be as transparent and real as I can be with you, as always, and uh, just uh, straightforward. By the time you've reached the third book in your Bible, uh, most people are so hopelessly lost that they lay down the Bible and walk away. Uh, Leviticus is the graveyard for Bible readers. You understand what I'm saying? You, you do good through Genesis and, oh, wait, here comes Moses now? Are you kidding me? Mount Sinai on fire and the Ten Commandments and the parting of the Red Sea and the Ten Plagues. And by the time you get to the next book, your Bible reading may have ended in the Bible reading graveyard of Leviticus. Because from Leviticus, and I'm saying it, understand it in the right way, it only gets worse. Until you get to the New Testament, okay? And that's a problem for us. Because uh, here at Cornerstone, one of the things that we're dedicated to, uh, what we're preaching and what we're presenting is much prayed over and much designed in a way to raise the biblical IQ for a generation of disciple makers. Let's see if I can restate this a few different ways. I'm definitely not speaking down to you. I I know you're brilliant people, and I know you're very biblically literate people. Uh, Let me say it this way. Whatever biblical IQ you arrive at Cornerstone with, we want to try to take you from there and take you on up a little bit. Is that fair? Um, Not because we want our church members to be smarter than everybody else. That's completely not the whole issue. What we know is when you engage with the Scripture and allow the Holy Spirit to speak through the Word of God, that is where real deep spiritual growth happens for the believer. If you can't engage with Scripture and understand what the Bible's saying, ho-hum. You say, no growth, boredom, close it, walk away. Uh, So it's imperative that God's people be able to engage with Scripture, understand what's happening in the Bible. And what we want here is we want you to grow uh, and and elevate your, your spiritual IQ, your theological IQ, to be the very best disciple maker you can be for Jesus Christ. Because after all, this is your destiny. So I'm going to challenge you this morning several different times in the next few minutes. I want to challenge you to stay engaged for the next few weeks. Because what we're going to do is we're going to give you the framework that is essential for understanding the story of the Bible. Now, our culture understands the importance of a sound, solid framework. Our culture totally gets this. So I want to title the sermon series Framework after deliberating with the staff because this is something we get in our culture. Just to show you how richly we get it, you may have seen the HGTV hit series. Simply two words for the title. Good Bones. And if I say, hey, anybody seen Good Bones? You already know what this story is going to be about. This is going to be about a a mother and daughter in Indianapolis who go into really crummy looking situations 
and rip it down to the good bones because there's something here, there's a valuable structure here, and they can look at what looks like junk and say, no, there's something important here, and the, the, the bones are good, the structure is good, and it's holding something valuable together, and uh, they put the emphasis on that good, but the bones are good. Well, just to show you how much our culture gets, this Marin Morris followed it, simply titled her song, The Bones. And I know you know the song. And if the bones are good, the rest don't matter. Why? Because you can work with that, right? You can build with that. You, you, if the bones are holding it together, we can fix whatever else is broken. Now, and this is really my thesis to you this morning that I'm trying to get across If you can get the structure of the Bible figured out and see what's holding it all together, the rest comes easy. But it, 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 it causes us to have to slow down a little bit. Let's think about that structure and try to try to wrap our minds around the structure. Now I'm a reader, and I think I wish everybody was, and I know everybody's not, and that's okay. I would encourage you, if you're not a reader, just keep switching genres till you find something you like. Seriously. Because once you find something you like, you're a reader. That, that's the truth of it. You'll, you'll find something that you'll click with eventually and become, if it's fiction, fine. Just learn to be a reader because reading is so, is so valuable. I enjoy reading and, and, and most of you already know that. But you might be shocked at some of the stuff I like to read. Now, I have to read a lot of theology. That's right. But then I let my mind, after I've really dug deep in the books, I say, hey, we need a few hours of vacation. So now I let my mind go on vacation. I just read fiction, okay, to to take a break and go save the world or go to the beach or something, you know. Uh, I love reading, but I especially like fast-paced literature with interesting characters. I read several books a week. Uh, Some are page-turners. Some you're just like, ooh, oh, yes, I can't put it down. I'm going to be up all night, okay? Some are like that, but a lot of what I read is so deeply scholarly that I'm like, I have to read each sentence three times. You ever read one of those books? You're like, what is this guy trying to say? And you're just reading and read, keep reading the same paragraph 20 times. You're like, oh, okay. Now, those are slow, slow pages uh, are being turned in that scenario. But the books I really enjoy are fiction. I love fiction, with, and most of the books I love have simple storylines. They're not confusing reads. Pretty simple storyline once you boil it down. It'll look something like this. Hero and villain locked in a struggle. Hero wants to free the world. Villain wants to enslave the world. Surprise, hero's working side by side with beautiful, intelligent, strong colleague. Subplot, they're falling in love. Story develops. Hero defeats villain, hero saves world, hero gets girl, or girl gets guy, however, and yay, everybody wins in the end. Now, that's the kind of book I like to read. When you read a book, many of the books I read are, just some girth to them. They're in good company, right? Some girth to them. And uh, in a book that's got some substance to it, there's usually multiple subplots in that book. In other words, they'll start one story, you'll flip the chapter, and like, wait, he started a whole other story on the other side of the world. What's happening here? There's multiple subplots in most complex uh, stories. It doesn't mean the storylines 
complicated, but the book, stay with me, this is very important, but the book seems to be complicated because the structure of the book is not yet clear to me. I mean, I just got started and I'm in uh, the Caribbean on a pirate ship and then a few minutes later I'm on the other side of the world. And, and, and once I understand he's developing multiple subplots, oh, okay, you know what I know immediately all three of these people are going to get together somewhere later in this story. They're all going to meet in Moscow and, and blow up the world or something. I mean, I just know the story's going to come together and I'll be watching for that because now I understand. Storyline's not complicated. It's just that the structure wasn't clear. In such cases of literature, our difficulty is not with the story. In such cases of literature, our difficulty is with the structure of the story. And I think the Bible fits into this category. You should think about what I'm saying now. The story's not complicated. It's the structure that's complicated. And once you understand the framework, see, here's a mistake we made, and I, I confess my sins often up here. The framework needs to be explained to God's people in order for them to understand the story. If you explain the framework of the scripture to God's people, They'll get the story just like that. Now, this for us is a safe environment. This is a place we can come once a week and be transparent and be honest. And this morning, what I'm going to ask you to do is just be honest about how we've been relating to God's Word. We we know we need to read it. We, We know we're better for memorizing it. But sometimes, honestly, we just don't understand the story that's being told. It's just kind of jumbled and and confusing leviticus exodus deuteronomy you just die right there what's happening is that the story went off the rails all of a sudden and if you've ever struggled with reading and understanding the bible it's not because you're an inferior christian it's not because you're a broken christian it's very likely that no one's ever explained the structure of the book to you Once you know the framework, all of the light bulbs are going to go off in your head. And that's really what we're going to do in this room for the next few weeks is we're going to explain to you the framework that holds the Bible story together. I just want to keep saying that. Once you know the structure, the story will be very clear because the story is a simple story that's being told. It's only the structure of the scripture itself that is a little complicated. So since the purpose of any book is to tell a story, right? We've got to ask ourselves early here, what then is the story of the Bible? So let me see if I can get you to approach the Scripture this way mentally for a few minutes. The Bible is a book, and therefore the Bible is literature. Well, okay, so far. So you have to approach the Bible as a work of literature and you have to do analysis like you would any piece of literature. Now understand, for those of you that are freaking out right now, it's a very unique piece of literature. No, yeah, I get that. But it is a piece of literature and so it has to be approached as a piece of literature. For example, any piece of literature has a theme, has a plot, has a cast of characters, has a protagonist, And an antagonist, I mean, a book tells a story, a good one at least, with tension. You're either scared reading it, 
or you're feeling something, or you're angry, or, 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 or you're stepping into the character's shoes and you're trying to save the world and, and, and make things work out, there's tension in a piece of literature. There's a struggle. And ultimately, when we approach something like that, we're reading to see how the tension is going to be solved. How are they going to work this thing out? Now, you understand, we're talking about the Bible now. There's some real issues with humanity, and we're reading that book saying, oh my goodness, the world is only evil continually, and God is really upset. Genesis 6, how is this going to work out? That's the question we're asking. Satan showed up and messed everything up. Sin, how is this going to work out? Jesus was destined to rule over the king. How is this going to work out when Satan has the kingdoms? How is the tension going to be solved? Now, the Bible's very complex. Listen to this. Because it's not just a book, it's a collection of books. It's a collection of 66 smaller works combined into one larger work. And those books were written over a period of 2,000 years by 40 different authors from three different languages on three different continents. And now you combine all of those writings into one book... And those biblical authors, there's great diversity. I mean, you've got shepherds and fishermen and prophets writing. You you think it's going to sound a little different? Uh, I mean, if we took an educator, where's the English teachers in the room? You know what I'm saying? If we take an English teacher and have him or her write their book, and we have, you know, the police officer write a book, we have the engineer write a book, we have the, the, the mechanic write a book. They're going to sound really different. Really different. But yet when these 66 books are combined from all of these different people. I mean, you got, you got king writing. you got a cupbearer writing. you got a physician writing a big chunk of the New Testament. you got a Pharisee writing a bigger chunk of the New Testament. Some of these books were written from green pastures. Some of these books were written from dark prisons. Some of these books were written from places of exile where they were enslaved. Some of these books were written from regal palaces where they were free. You think they're going to sound a little different? Yeah. But yet, despite all of this diversity in your Bible, the collection of books that we call the Holy Bible has one consistent storyline. One consistent storyline. Now... We get a little technical with some language this morning. This is what we call a meta-narrative. Grand narrative. I'm giving you synonyms. Overarching story. So when I use the word meta-narrative, it means when you hold the Bible in your hand, it's telling one overarching grand story. What is that story? That would be the meta-narrative. And here's the question for you. What is the meta-narrative of the Bible. Now our thesis here at Cornerstone is that God's story is about God's heaven and earth kingdom united together. It's about God's kingdom on earth, heaven, earth, united kingdom, and God's created humans ruling as kings in that kingdom, as image bearers of the living and holy God. And that Those people are going to live out their divine vocation on this earth, ruling for God in the heaven and earth kingdom that he built. 
That's really the story. And, and that uh, story is being told through a framework, a structure of covenants. Don't get lost now. The bones that are holding the house together in the Bible are covenants. The Bible is structured around at least six major covenants that we're going to look at. I'm going to knock a couple of them right off the table this morning really quickly. And then next week we can go a little bit slower with, with Abraham and with Moses and, 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 and with David and the new covenant that's coming. But when you understand the framework of the covenant, you're like, oh, that's why the story goes like this. Exactly. Each covenant is being introduced into the pages of your Bible to carry the story a little bit further. There's Adam. We're going to carry the story a little bit further with Noah. We're going to carry the story a little bit further with Moses. We're going to carry the story a little bit further. Each covenant carries the story a little bit further until finally, near the end of the book, you know what you're going to find out? The hero wins. The characters fall in love. The villain is destroyed. The people are set free to live out their destiny in freedom and happiness and joy. And they assume their destiny and it's all rainbows and unicorns when the story ends. Now if you don't remember anything else, that's, that's where we're going with the story. It's all rainbow, rainbows and unicorns. David said fart last week, so I'm okay. <laughs> The story of the Bible is beautiful. It's uplifting. It's encouraging. And our thesis is the covenants are providing the framework for the biblical story. The story's not confusing. Get that out of your head. It's a very easy story. It's not complicated. The key for us as a body of believers, as disciples of Christ, is to identify when I open my Bible, which part of the, which covenant am I, which room in the house am I in? You're like, why isn't there a sink in here? Well, because you're in the bedroom. Well, why, well, where's the couch, you're saying? Well, you're in the kitchen. And if you can identify where you're at in the covenant structure, then the story that's being told makes perfect sense. So here's our heavy left this morning. What in the world's covenant? What in the world's covenant? Listen, if evangelicals and Baptists and, 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 uh, have been neglectful of anything, they haven't talked about covenants hardly at all. No wonder we don't know how to read the Bible because it's built on a structure of covenants. What is a covenant? Now, here's where you're going to have to learn some terminology this morning. So we're going to raise that IQ right here a little bit. Covenants are not a Bible thing. In other words, they didn't, the Bible didn't invent covenants. Covenants were very common in the ancient Near East. In other words, Egypt, Syria, uh, uh, Babylon, even in, in, on into history, uh, 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 Syria, uh, uh, Greece, Rome, covenants are, were everywhere. It was a common cultural thing. Everybody knew about covenants. As a matter of fact, you do too, you just don't major on it. If you've ever closed on a house, you probably had a sheet of paper stu- stuck in front of you and you signed off on the covenants and the agreements and the whatever. It's part of the closing package. Now, covenants didn't originate in the Bible. The Bible took something that everybody understood and began to explain it. You know, I mean, maybe they patterned it off the first covenant God made with Adam, but it was a common thing in society. And covenants come in a couple of different basic forms, but the one I'm going to teach you this morning is really the most important one to know. 
And that's the suzerain vassal covenant. I know, I just hit you with three words that are just like not in your vocabulary. The suzerain vassal covenant. Now, for those of you who uh, really want to get it, let me define suzerain and vassal, and you'll understand what a suzerain vassal covenant is. So let me put the definition up to suzerain. It's not a word we use. Here's what the definition is in the dictionary. A superior feudal lord to whom fealty is due. Has anybody ever heard the word overlord? Like big time lord, you know what I'm saying? So let me simplify the definition right here. Great king. Now in more, and more history towards us, Alexander the Great, Rome, etc., Emperor might be a word you would use. Great king, okay? The second definition, a dominant state controlling the foreign relations of a vassal state. This is Rome ruling an empire but telling the Jews you're our vassal state. You have your own king, you can rule your own affairs, but if you want to crucify someone, you need to ask Pontius Pilate. Does that make sense? Other than that, hold your own court, have a Sanhedrin, we don't care. Mind your own business, keep the taxes coming, we'll keep the peace coming. There you go. Uh, This is Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar ruling an empire and having many presidents, vassal kings under the great king. Suzerain is the word for great king. That's all it means. All right, so what's a vassal? Vassal is a person under the protection of the overlord, uh, under the protection of the feudal lord, to whom he has vowed homage and fealty, one in a subservient or subordinate position. Is that clear at all? One is a big-time king, great, great overlord. One is a regional king. Both are kings. Matter of fact, one's made in the image of the other in our story. They get to make decisions. One owes homage and fealty. One provides protection. All right, so let's talk about what a covenant is in this context. A covenant, then is a diplomatic treaty between a suzerain, a great king, and a vassal king to reinforce the interests of the great king. I'm going to create a planet. I'm going to put a man in it. He's a king, and you're there to advance my interests as God. Is that simple enough? I am Nebuchadnezzar. Alan Smith, you're in charge of Egypt. Rule it on behalf of me. Advance my interests. I am Julius Caesar. Welcome, Roman legions. You've just conquered Greece. You know what I want you to do? Don't come home to Rome. Stay in Corinth. Stay in Philippi. Stay in Greece and and colonize it and bring my values, bring Roman values to Greece, bring Roman culture to Greece. You understand the story? Suzerain, vassal agreements. The entire Bible is built on this concept And if you get this structure, the scripture just becomes clear. A covenant is a diplomatic treaty between a suzerain great king and a vassal king to reinforce the interests of the great king. Oaths are made. I mean, pledges are made. Oaths are made. Terms are set. And those terms are backed up with divine sanctions. The suzerain king, the great king, he pledges... To the vassal king, I will give you my protection. I will guarantee peace. I will guarantee prosperity. That's what I will do for the little kings. The vassal kings, the little kings, they pledge loyalty to the suzerain king. And they say, we promise to advance your culture. In this context, the culture of Jesus Christ is the one we, the kingdom of God is what we're advancing. We promise to advance your culture. 
We promise to advance your values. We promise to make, we promise to make decisions on behalf of the great king. We promise we will advance your mission in this kingdom that we serve in together. Now, if the vassal breaks the terms of the covenant, serious punishments are imposed. Now, I'm going to say this in a very graphic way, so hold on. There will be hell to pay if you break the terms. And I say it that way because when you understand the story the Bible's telling, you understand exactly what's happening. That's not a metaphor anymore. There will be serious consequences if you break the terms of the covenant. Now, many of the ancient covenant ceremonies involved a sacrifice normally. We, so if we're going to make a covenant, suzerain to vassal, we get an ox or, or something, we, we cut the animal in two pieces. We take one big chunk and put on this altar. We take the other big chunk and put on this altar. And the parties involved in the covenant ceremony then would pass between the two altars together, walk between the two pieces of the animal while swearing an oath, may this be done to me if I break the terms of the covenant. May what be done to me? Go ahead, say it out loud. May you chop me in half. You realize this is a serious deal. And you know what? If you betrayed the suzerainty, he probably would chop you in half. He had the authority to do that kind of thing. And so they went between two big altars and two big chunks of animal and said, may this happen to me if I break the terms of the covenant. And that was so common in the ancient world that when they said, let's do a covenant, they actually worded it this way. They said, let's cut a covenant. You ever wonder where that came from? In America? Hey, cut me a check. Hey, let's cut a deal. Yeah, I cut a deal with the business over there. I cut a deal with the landowner to drill. I cut a deal with the community. To... How did we ever get cut a deal? It comes from the suzerain vassal language. Because they cut the animal, they would say, let's cut a covenant. Because we're going to talk a whole lot about cutting in the next few weeks. And you've got to understand why we're talking about cutting. Did, you ever, did that question ever come up in your mind at all? Why all this cutting is in the Bible? Well, there's a reason. Because the Bible's built on a structure of covenants. And you had to cut a covenant. And that's why that language exists in Scripture. Wow, I think we've just plowed a good field right there. Now, that's something maybe you've never heard. Now, give me about five or ten. I'm going to explain the first two covenants in the Bible in Cliff Notes' version. Now we're ready to look at the first book in your Bible, book of Genesis. Let's approach it as a piece of literature with a little literary analysis. Let's look at the book of Genesis. And the first question you ask when you pick up a book is, who wrote it and why? So when we grab the book of Genesis up and say, let's read this book of Genesis, we should first, who wrote it and why? Does anybody know who wrote it? Well, Moses wrote it, sure. Matter of fact, the first five books in your Bible are called the Pentateuch, Pent, pentagram, pentagon, the five, five points, five sides, Pentateuch, the five books, that's the collection of writings, and Moses wrote other stuff, he wrote some psalms and songs, but the five books in the front of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they were written by Moses. Okay, piece of cake. Here's the big question, why? 
Why in the world would Moses write the first... Write the, what, was the, what were the circumstances and what was the occasion of Moses writing the book of Genesis? Well, now, without understanding this, you'll be forever lost. So let me just give you a paragraph right here. Here's why Moses wrote the book of Genesis. What was the occasion? Well, you know who Moses is. We'll talk about him in two weeks. But Moses was destined to be Pharaoh of Egypt, realizes he's Hebrew, called to be the deliverer, takes all the slaves, you be the slaves for a minute, takes all the Jews, brings them out of slavery to go to Mount Sinai and worship God. And now as Moses, the deliverer, is is leading the children of Israel and, 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 and cheering for them and saying, hey, for 400 years you've been slaves and now you're free, he realized something was very broken very broken. And here's what was very broken. The Jews had been in captivity for 400 years. They'd been enslaved by the Egyptians. They had lost their dignity. They had lost their ancestry. They were being defined by the world. They didn't say, here's who we are. Egypt said, here's who you are. And you know what Egypt told the Jews? They said, you're animals, so we're going to treat you like animals. We can beat you, we can neglect you, we can abuse you, we can work you just like you're a horse or a mule, because in our eyes that's all you are. The Egyptians told the Jews they were subhuman. The Egyptians told the Jews you're just property, you're inferior to us, you're disposable, you're unimportant, you're worthless. Now, I'm not a psychologist, but I think I figured out a couple of things. When you're put down and told lies for 400 years. You can fall victim to believing the lies you've been told. I mean, you've seen some shifts in American culture where you know people have heard a lie long enough they begin to believe it. Can you imagine being in slavery for 400 years? They begin to believe what the Egyptians were saying to be true. You might even, if you've been lied to long enough, you might even start living out and acting out You'd be told, listen, if science class at school teaches us we're just animals, don't be shocked if students don't start acting like it. You you see what I'm saying? If it's survival of the fittest, then why not be the bully? (laughs) You see the point? I mean, who who says? And they'd been told lies so long they had begun to live out the lies. And when Moses becomes the, the liberator of this people and the leader of this people, he's like, oh my goodness, we are very broken people. And he's one of them. He understood the condition. And so God says, liberate them. And Moses says, oh, they're living a tragedy. They don't know who they are. I mean, God, you called me to liberate these people. God, these are your people. But they don't know they're your people. They don't know who they are. So God says, maybe you need to write them a book. So Moses begins to write the first five books of the Bible. And... He begins to tell the Jews their story. Now, here's why. Because knowing your story is empowering. This is why, you know, this is why we research our ancestry. You hope they're not all, you know, bootleggers and, 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 and you know, ex-cons. I got a bunch of those in my family tree. You hope you read back in your family tree and say, hey, I can, you know, came from nobility or some good people in my family or somebody was honorable and, you know, these are my... Yeah, something empowering about knowing your story. So what Moses began to do in the book of Genesis, Exodus numbers, he began to catechize the Jews. Now, a catechism is just a summary story of something, just kind of a boiled down 
if you catechize somebody in the Christian faith, you teach them what salvation and baptism and who Jesus, just give them the basic facts. Moses begins to catechize the Jews. He's going to write a story now called Genesis, and he's going to tell the Jews where they came from. He's going to tell the Jews, here's who God says you are. Forget what you've been told. You are special to God. God has purposed for you to live as kings. You were created to be living images of the holy God. You were not created to be slaves to other human beings. They didn't know that. And so Moses begins to tell them who they are. Now, let's get real for a Let's have a get real moment here. You've probably been frustrated with the Bible. You've probably said, I wish Moses would have written something about the dinosaurs. Have you ever had that thought? I'd like to know what happened to the dinosaurs. I mean, you're talking about creation and Noah's flood and all these things. I wanted, you say, why didn't the Bible talk a whole lot about the dinosaurs? That's not the book Moses is writing. That's how simple it is. That's not the book he's writing. You say, well, wow, just like three chapters of creation and we're just moving on with civilization. I wish he'd given us more about what Eden was like and what creation was like and give us more detail about the first marriage, give us more detail about the first family. That's not the book, Moses. He's not writing a zoology book. He's not writing a geology book. He's not writing an anthropology book. He's writing a catechism of the Jews because they don't know who they are and he just liberated them from Egypt. Does that make any sense at all? And you're like, well, why didn't God tell us? That's not the book Moses is writing. Now, you may be frustrated with God that he didn't ask somebody to write that book, and that's maybe fair. But that's not the book Moses is writing, and that's not why he's even writing at all to give a history of the dinosaurs. He's writing to give a history of the Jews. So the Jews would understand you weren't created to be slaves. You were created to be vassal kings ruling the earth for God Almighty. And God thinks you're special he hasn't forsaken you even though you've had a really rough 400 years. God loves you and he wants to work through you. Now, this is the framework of Genesis. Let me give it to you really quickly. The slides are in the notes on you version. You can take a quick picture, but you're going to have the whole structure of Genesis right here. The framework of Genesis is comprised of three covenants. A covenant between God and Adam, Adam then representing all of the human race. That's chapters 1, 2, and 3. There's a covenant right there. Second Framework of Genesis comes with the second covenant. Ten generations later, God resets, makes a covenant with Noah. And thus, all of the human race through Noah as its new Adam. Noah as the new Adam, the new start. Okay? Second covenant's made right there, or a restatement of the first, however you want to look at it. And the covenant brings the story a little further along now, and it'll get you all the way up to about chapter 11b. God will make a third covenant with a man named Abraham. That'll be our story next week, with a man named Abraham. And that'll carry the story a little bit further along, the story of Abraham. Does that make sense? There is the entire book of Genesis right there. And if you understand the three covenants that God makes in the book of Genesis, then the book of Genesis makes perfect sense. You understand exactly what you're dealing with. Let me tell you about the first two covenants real quick. The first covenant that God made was between God, the great king, suzerain. God, the suzerain great king, and the covenant he made with Adam, who represented all the human race. And Moses tells the story right here in the first three chapters of Genesis about how God created a world designed to be God's heaven-earth kingdom where, the two, where heaven and earth touched. They met right there, and God met with man right there in that temple called 
Eden. And in that temple where all the pagan cultures put an image of their God, God said, I'm not into graven images. I'm into living images. So I won't put an idol in my temple called Eden. Instead, I'll put living images of God in my temple called Adam and Eve. Your great-great-grandparents. And God said, I'm going to make a covenant with my images, with these humans, with Adam. And now Moses is telling the story. He's writing this story down to give the Jews their backstory. But Moses goes back beyond Abraham, beyond Noah, and Moses decides just for three quick chapters, I'll go all the way back to the very beginning of the story. Because if you understand what God did in the first, when he created, you'll understand you weren't made to be slaves. Is that fair? You weren't made to be slaves. The exact opposite is true. God created you to be vassal kings ruling over his creation. That's your destiny. You say, then how do we get into this condition? Oh boy. Chapter 3 tells that story. Satan entered in the Garden of Eden and sin entered because of some rebellion against God. But God designed that temple in Eden to be the temple of the living God. Adam and Eve had a divine vocation. Their divine vocation was to reflect God to this earth as living images. I want you to always think of it as tilted mirrors. They were to reflect God to this earth. That was their vocation. They were to rule. They were to make decisions. They were to take that creation that God made. See, God didn't make highways. I don't read that anywhere. He didn't make uh, uh, skyscrapers. He didn't, there are no city parks. There's no, there's no slides and swimming pools and merry-go-rounds and Ferris wheels and roller coasters. And, uh, uh, no. He intended for Adam and Eve to do that. They were brilliant. You're brilliant. God intended for us to make those decisions. We were to rule the kingdom on his behalf and make the decisions we have free will. We, we, free, we, we're, we're, we have minds. We can act. And, and so Adam and Eve began to tend that garden and bring order and, and more organization out of the, the original creation. The goal was to build a whole civilization on that Eden start. To build a whole planet that looked like that utopia that man has always longed to get back to. And that covenant that God made with Adam and Eve. They were reflecting God and they were reflecting worship from the creation back to God. Let me just read you the verses because I'm going to run out of time. Here we go. Genesis 1. Here's the language of the covenant. Now, they don't use the word covenant, but I'll show you how you know it's covenant. God saw all that he had made. It was very good. There was evening. There was morning. And it, and, and it was the, the sixth day. Come ahead again. 28. Here we go. And God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. There was evening and there was morning. It was six, eight. Very good. He saw what he means. Very good. I want you to get into your mind that creation is not bad. We're not Platonists. We're not followers of Plato trying to escape this world and fly away to heaven to live with Jesus for eternity. That's not the story of the Bible. In the Bible, they don't fly away to heaven to live with Jesus forever in heaven. I know it's shocking, right? In the story, they come back to planet Earth with new resurrected bodies and rebuild a kingdom. That's the story the Bible's telling. You're not going to be an angel. You're not going to be a naked baby playing a harp, riding on a cloud. You're not an angel. You're a human being made in the image of the living God. And your destiny is to rule as a king on this earth over a little kingdom. And let's read a little bit further, okay? Let's go to, yeah, it's 29. 
God's beginning to talk. Let's go to 28. God bless them. Genesis 1, 28. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that is in the ground. I want you to multiply and fill the earth and I want you to rule over everything. Verse 29. Then God said, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit in it with seed, this will be yours for food. The original diet plan was all vegetarian. Okay? I don't know if you're pro or con, but that was the original. Eat, eat the vegetables, eat the fruit. This is yours for food. Verse 30. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made. Verse 31. It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning and there it is. All right, now. Here's the covenant. You're the rulers. Take control. Be fruitful. Multiply organize this planet and get it going. Did the human beings keep their end of the covenant? I think you know the story, right? They did not keep the covenant. They did not continue to live as his image bearers. In fact, they were given an opportunity to rebel and they took it and they said, we'll do what we want to do. We'll define good and evil. We'll do what's right in our own eyes. And they rebelled against God. How do you know it's a covenant? The prophet Hosea, chapter 6, verse 7 But they, like Adam, say it out loud, have violated the covenant. They have betrayed me. If you want to know how God feels about breaking the covenant, may this be done to me if I violate the terms of the covenant. And I told you there were severe consequences to be held to pay for violating the covenant. God said, yeah, you've betrayed me. You're trying to live something that's not what I created you for. You broke the covenant we had with each other. Were there serious consequences for Adam and Eve? (laughs) Wow. They lost their divine vocation. They lost their kingdom. The kingdom was abdicated to Satan. They lost part of what they were to rule over. They brought all of humanity under the consequences of sin and under the consequent, the curse of death. Oh yeah, there were, there were consequences to the violation of the covenant. Their, one of their boys is about to murder the other boy when you turn... I mean, it, oh yeah, there are severe... Con- by the time you get to chapter 6, the world's totally corrupted itself with violence and evil. There were incredible consequences because of what they did. Now here's what I want you to take away. We're almost done. Stay with me. God did not abandon the human project. This is the structure of the story now. You say, well, why is there a second covenant? Because God's going to step back in again and say, I don't want it to end there. God was not willing to let Satan have the final say. You say, why? Because he loves us. I can't figure out why, but he does. He loves us incredibly. And he said, I'm not willing to let Satan have the final say on this matter. I'm not willing to let the story end here with corruption and death. I'm not willing to let the project that I created go south right out of the third chapter of the book. No, I'm not. I I love these people and I love what I've done. I've got a great plan. I've got an idea in my mind about a kingdom of priests and kings ruling this earth, reflecting God in fellowship with me. I've got an idea in my mind and I will not give up on my dream. That's really God right there. Will not give up on what he started. But here's what happens. For ten generations following Genesis 3, following Adam and Eve, 
ten generations are going to be mentioned. You can count them in Genesis chapter 5. The ten generations are laid out and humanity refuses. The nations that are built refuse to serve God. They refuse to re-engage with God. He's long-suffering. He's patient. There's a few good people in the story. But they cannot get humanity to come back and engage with God. God says, okay, we're going to start over. Now you say, who's writing? Moses. Why is he writing? He's telling the story of the Jews. But he's got to go back far enough to set the stage. So he says, here's what's happened next. Ten generations rebelled against God. So God's going to step in and do a hard reboot on planet Earth. He's going to reboot the whole human project. He's going to destroy the world with a worldwide flood, global flood. But he's going to take a new Adam, you know his name, right? Noah and his sons and their wives and put them in the ark and protect them. And when we come through on the other side of the thing, God's going to make a new covenant or restate the first one again. And here we go. Let me read the second covenant. It's between God and Noah. Genesis 9, 1. Sin 6, 7, 8, and 9. But let me read from 9. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying, Be fruitful and increase and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Just read it out of Genesis chapter 1. Restatement of the first covenant with all of humankind again. Then God said in verse 3, Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. There's a change. There's a little twist on the covenant. God said, whatever's different about the world and the situation now, you need some protein in your diet. Have chicken nuggets, okay? Everything that moves about will be food for you. Just as I've given you the green plants, I now give you... Go ahead and say it out loud. Now, I wouldn't suggest eating everything. I mean, I'm not into possum and raccoon and, and, you know, I mean, there's some things that... Whatever floats your boat, though, you live in a little different situation. Now, one of the things that's confusing is when people who live way over here in 2020 want to keep going back under maybe different covenants and find different pieces and say, well, I have to do this and I have to do that. No, you're confused because you don't understand which room you're in right now, what framework you're in. Now we're in Noah, and God's made a covenant with Noah, and so you can eat whatever you want to eat. Verse 11, I have established my covenant with you. Never again will I destroy, will life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. Oh, so something about this covenant is still in play today. Yeah, I saw one just the other day, actually. God said, verse 12, This is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant, so covenants can have a sign. That's a new revelation to you. Hold that for the coming weeks. I've set a sign for the covenant. 14. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind never again. Will the waters become a flood to destroy life? Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it. God, don't you worry. I'll see it. And I will remember the covenant that I make. Does God keep the terms of his covenants? That's kind of what you're getting here, isn't it? When God makes a promise, he's going to keep his promise. That's really not the question. Will God do his part? The question is, will the vassal kings, will we do our part? Whenever the rainbow appears, I will see it. I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. Now, I'm done. We're right here at the end. 
what follows after the flood. This is Genesis 9. 10 is a genealogy and 11 is going to be a shift. 11a is one covenant. 11b really is another covenant. Here's what's coming. After Noah gets off the ark, the Bible lists 10 generations of people. 10 before the flood, they wouldn't do right. So now we have a new Adam called Noah, and he's going to restart the story. Ten generations of humanity follow in this summarized chapters 10 and 11. Let me ask you a question. Did the people keep the covenant? What do you think? Have you read the... What do you, you think they did or they didn't? How many people think they did not keep the covenant? Yeah, you would be right. They did not keep the covenant in those ten generations. They did not pursue their divine vocation. They did not try to engage with God as his vassal kings. They did not ask God what the mission was. Matter of fact, they did whatever they wanted to do. And they said there are no boundaries. We'll just live like wild people. And they just did whatever they wanted to do. And nations began to form. And now it's not individual rebellion Now it's a united rebellion. And when Genesis chapter 11 opens, 11a, the first part of Genesis chapter 11, we discover that the ten generations of humans have now built these massive nations and the nations have united. What you have in Genesis 11a is the United Nations of Rebellion meeting at their corporate headquarters called the Tower of Babel. That's 11a. The nations have got together and said, God, we don't give a rip about you and your promises and your covenants. We are our own people and we'll do whatever we want to do and nanny, nanny, boo, boo. Let me ask you, are there any consequences to breaking the covenant? Oh boy. And God says right here in Genesis 11a, let's go down and confound them. Now, if you don't understand the story and the structure, you're like, God is so mean. Gosh, I can't believe you do. He's so mean. Oh, no, no. God's not mean. He was in a covenant with his creation, and his creation turned their back on the suzerain king. And there's always consequences when you snub the great king. I mean, they totally trashed the king who made them and who gave them this planet. And God says, yeah, that's not going to work out. It's no longer individual rebellion, chapter 11. Now it's unified national rebellion. And by the end of chapter 11, God says, okay, I cannot get these nations to follow me. How about I just find a man and build a whole new nation? You see, I've got this idea when I created Adam and Eve that I could create something like me. And we would have this awesome relationship and I would give them the tremendous power and authority. And I would put them in this beautiful earth creation that I built for them. And heaven would touch earth because I would come down and fellowship with them. And they would live a heaven and earth reality with God. It would be so awesome. And God said, I have not given up on my idea. Now this morning you may be saying, Pastor, why do I care? Well, you care for a lot of reasons. You care that there's a third covenant we've not yet talked about, which means there's more story to tell. You care because the consistent theme in this story is not just man breaking the covenant. The consistent theme in this story is the great king won't give up on you. So here we are in 2020, living in our own little turmoil. And you know what promise I have from God and from the Bible? 
God is not finished dealing with us yet. He will not let Satan have the last word in my life. Even if I rebel, he's given me a way to engage in a relationship with him and get back from my rebellion. Oh, we're going to learn all kinds of things in the next few weeks. But the big thing I want you to take away this morning is God is not giving up on you. And you may have thought at times in your life, well, gosh, I'm praying and I don't know if God is here. He's hearing. He promised he would hear. You say, well, I just don't see God acting. Be patient. God works. He's the great king. And his timetable and ours don't always look exactly alike. I mean, we're living our little kingdom. He's a great king. But he's absolutely powerful. Let him work his plan. You go home with this in your heart this morning. God is pursuing us. And you can say me if you want to. That's how God's pursuing me. God's pursuing you. God has a plan for your life and for my life. God has a purpose for you and I being here. And the reason we're going to try to understand the story of the Bible, because it's not just the Jew's story, it's also our story. This is your story. This is your destiny to be a living image of the great king. All right, now this week comes with homework. Sorry. Sorry. Here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to read Genesis 1 to 11. Pretty easy read now because I've told you the whole story. And I want you to see the two covenants. Read it now through the lens of, ooh, one through three is a covenant. And I'm going to see the covenant God makes and what he does and what happens when they break it. And now I'm going to read the, you know, three, three B or four through 11. I'm going to see God's about to make a new, ooh, look how bad it got. Ooh, yikes. Okay, here comes God stepping in. Make a new covenant. Save everybody's bacon. Start it all over again. Yeah, that's God. He's not going to, he's not going to let Satan have the last word. God loves you too much uh in these uh weeks of this fall season uh i, I have a my, my uncle's been coming in with the staff and coaching us and praying with us and doing devotions together and every thursday we have some time of prayer and getting the word of god together and just study and 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 have some robust discussion one of the curious things i've noticed whenever my uncle uh he, he's a presbyterian pastor whenever my uncle prays my uncle always starts his prayer mom and i were commenting on this some, some weeks back uh, God, our great king, Lord, I come to you today, but, and that's where he always starts his prayer. And, and she and I commented on that, and I said, Ma, we were saying, you, know, you notice how Uncle Tommy prays. It's a little, a little different. He, always start, he said, dear Heavenly Father, or dear Lord, or God, I come to you today. He always starts his prayer, God, our great king. Do you know why he starts his prayer that way? <laughs> because God is the great suzerain king building covenants with his people, generation after generation. And here's what I want you to do this morning. We're going to close in prayer. Jeremy and the team are going to come give us a worship song as we go home. But I want to have like 30 seconds, a minute of prayer right here. But I want you to pray in a very specific way this morning. I want you to approach God, and maybe for the first time in your life, you're having some real clarity. You're a king. You're a priest in the New Testament. But he's the great king. Yes, he's given you the ability to make your own decisions within the framework of furthering his kingdom. So when you pray this morning, I want you to make your prayer to God in this structure. God, my great king. And maybe for the first time in your life, you realize you're in a covenant relationship with the great king of the universe.
Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed. Now, there may be many things in your heart you need to say to God in this few minutes. But what I'd like you to pray about is what you've just understood. What reality has just occurred to you in this few minutes together. And I want you to begin your prayer. God, my great king. And maybe you want to say something like, God, I pledge my faithfulness to you. Pledge my loyalty. Or you may want to say, God, my great king. I'm sorry because I've ignored you. Or you may want to say, God, my great king. There's some things I need from my great king this morning. Or you may want to say, God, my great king, I'm reminded today how much you love me and you will never give up on me. God, my great king, I remember today why I was created. God, my great king, I remember today the importance being your child, being your king, your vassal king. God, my great king, I want to serve you. God, my great king, let me do only your will. God, my great king, just pour your heart out just for a moment. And if this morning you have no relationship with God, the great king, What an opportunity today to know him and to become that vassal king in a relationship with the great king. You never see Christ as your savior. There are many people in the room who would be willing to pray with you. Some of our deacons, uh, elders are in the back right now. You slip out of your seat, go back there and just say to one of those in the back, pray with me. I need to enter into a relationship with the great king today. I need to be saved. Man, in just a few minutes, you can have that peace in your heart that God is your great king and your sins are forgiven. Father, I pray your blessings over this wonderful group of people this morning who in their hearts, our Lord, are expressing through their prayers right now their love for you, their desire to walk in a relationship with you. Lord, maybe a fresh understanding of the greatness the greatness of your kingship the honor to be called your vassal kings your servants your children lord the divine vocation which you have given to humanity your desire for us to be the living images of you to this world god i pray that you would enlighten our understanding in these weeks together and give us clarity on the story and structure of the scripture Lord, that we may grow to be everything you've destined us to be. God, we are honored to be your children. Thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for pursuing this human project and not giving up on us. We know we're rebellious. God, thank you for your grace and your mercy. This is our prayer as your people this morning. In Jesus' name.